Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this, the ninth in our summer series of lectures sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. We're very grateful to the foundation and we're grateful too to the Harrison Institute and to the Special Collections Library, the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library here for their gracious hospitality. I'd like to begin with a shameless commercial message. Tomorrow morning, if you are able, if things go according to schedule, you should endeavor to purchase the New York Times. It will appear, it appears now anyway, if the publishing schedule isn't supplanted by the um, resurrection of Bob Hope or some such event, that the front page of the arts section will, will have a feature on Rare Book School. I thought you should know because none of your relatives understands at all what you are doing here. <laughs> and this might help explain in some small measure. Tonight is cause for celebration in a much more immediate and, dare I say, greater way. For tonight, Matthew Carter will deliver the Saul M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. The Malkin Lecture is the highest honor that we can accord any individual who works in the bibliographical arts. It's named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, Saul and Marianne Malkin. Uh, and the A.B. Bookman's Weekly from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. It covered collecting and research librarianship as well as used and rare bookselling. And the journal was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers and collectors and librarians. In 1984, Mary Ann Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of her husband, Saul, in recognition of his contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Our very own Michael Winship, sitting here in the front row, gave the first Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography at Columbia University way back in December 1985. After Saul Malkin died in 1986, just a few months after Winship had delivered the inaugural lecture, Marianne herself decided that she would continue to support Rare Book School, and she did so vigorously, both at Columbia and then at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she allowed Rare Book School founding director Terry Bellinger, sitting here in the second row, to change the name of the lecture to the Saul M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. And until her death in 2005, she came down from New York City to attend most of the Malkin Lectures. And when she died, she left the school a significant portion of her estate. 
She was truly a friend of Rare Book School. Malkin lecturers over the years have included such notables as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Bill Barlow, Bob Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucien Goldschmidt, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Keyes Lee, Paul Needham, Bill Reese, Ken Rendell, Bernard Rosenthal, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. And the list goes on and on. It seems strange that I should present to you Matthew Carter because you have seen Matthew Carter all your life. All your life you have been looking at Carter, or at least you've been looking into something of Carter's mind. If you've ever used an Apple computer, if you've ever used a product by Microsoft, there are a few in the room who have actually used a Bloomberg terminal. All of these bear the mark of Matthew Carter's designs. If you've ever been to Heathrow Airport, if you've ever opened a copy of Sports Illustrated, if you've ever used a phone book that was published under the aegis of AT&T, you have seen Matthew Carter's designs. He is responsible for more than 60 typeface families and more than 250 individual typefaces. Seven of these are in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, in New York. The seven are Bell Centennial, to which I just averted for the phone book, Big Kazan, ITC Galliard, Mantinia, Miller, which is the Rare Book School primary typeface, uh, Walker, and um, Verdana. And one could go on, but let's let the man speak himself, albeit in just a minute. <laughs> I am required by the Commonwealth of Virginia at this juncture in the proceedings to introduce a Thomas Jefferson anecdote. <laughs> so the Jefferson anecdote and then the man himself. When Archibald Binney and James Rowlandson, immigrants from Scotland who established one of the first type foundries in the United States when they uh, set up their shop in Philadelphia, asked the former president, Thomas Jefferson, for his help in obtaining antinomy, which as you know is used in type founding, because their existing supply was interrupted by an international trade dispute. Jefferson helped them find a new source in France. And in later years, he expressed admiration for the types of Binney and Rowlandson, which by the 1920s had become the most commonly used types in the United States. So some years later, Rowlandson wrote again to Jefferson, sending him a specimen of the company's latest printing types, saying, don't you think they're good, sir? Don't you think we are making progress? And this is TJ's reply. Although increasing debility warns me 
that it cannot be long before the transactions of the world will close upon me. Yet I feel ardent wishes for the continued progress of science and the arts and the consequent advancement of the happiness of man. When I look back to Bell's edition of Blackstone, about 1733, 1773, and compare his with your types, and by the progress of the last half century, estimate that progress in the centuries to come, I am cheered with the prospects of improvement in the human condition, which, although not infinite, are certainly indefinite. Had he known about the visionary work of Matthew Carter, TJ would surely have been proud. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce him to you. I'm so glad you told that <coughs> anecdote because it sort of comes into my uh, uh, into my talk in a, in, a, in a few minutes. So the talk is about uh, revivals, some typefaces that I have derived from historical models. It's a very personal view, I think. I don't necessarily advocate this historical approach to designing type. In my own case, I suppose the backward look at history was rather hard to avoid. My father, Harry Carter, was a historian of type. Within a year of leaving school, this was in 1955, I'd spent time working in the type foundry of Enschede's in the Netherlands. I'd been at the Plant and Mauritius Museum in Antwerp and at the University Press at Oxford, three of the most important sanctuaries of typographic history, each with astonishing collections of ancient material. I was, as the French say, raised in the harem. Uh, this very intimate contact I was allowed with the historical treasures in those places, you know, I was impressionable age, 18 or something rather, influenced me very much and, I, and I, I still feel it. But I'm not a nostalgist nor a, a, an embalmer. I don't wish that all our typography looked like the typography of the 15th century or the 16th or the 17th, whatever. Um, I'm someone uh, living very much in the present, um, but given to uh, an occasional uh, a backward look. And it's only really a minority of the faces I've designed that have been based on historical precedents, but they've been among my favorite projects, uh, I think. Um, the first one to talk about She said, tap the screen anywhere. <laughs> Someone at the back is going to help me with this. Well done, thank you. I'm going to be more careful this time. <laughs> I 
something in blank screen. Oh. Yep. Should we turn on the projector? I could wing this, but uh, no, no, kind of. <laughs> Talk among yourselves. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be back with you in a minute. It says projector warming. I, I think that's a good sign. There, the panel, you know, there's source, um, and it says no source. Do you know uh, what is the source? Where the slides coming from? They're coming from this computer. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So once it boosts, then we should be able to pick it as the source. That sounds good. The worst part is the long waits. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to introduce to you today Matthew Carter. <laughs> 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 Have you seen the film Groundhog Day? 
Matthew Carter's production. Um, I didn't bring Sports Illustrated. <laughs> I am told that the whole system has shut down and it will be about four minutes. We've got it. <laughs> about four minutes before we can power up fully again. Um, so relax, it's all going to happen. And um, as the man himself said, talk among yourselves. <laughs> this is better. I think they're they have control over the more there too. Did you still bring this for the Yeah, see the projectors over there, and we've been seeing a lot of light coming from over there. But this is, this is good. Second, it this should is be progress, see? Yeah. Right. I don't know why it's not working, but this is everything should be So you did this, I guess, already, right? Yeah. The projection says it's on and ready. Right. It's this. That's just a volume. Okay. Um, it couldn't possibly be a laptop, could it? That should be those guys. Yeah, that's right. Okay. This happened last time also. And I, I literally turned it, I was, I literally was like, okay, we need to make sure that this works 10 minutes ago. And yeah. It worked just fine. And so I don't know about the problems. The projector's on and ready. It should be fine. Yeah, the, the one thing I know is not to turn off a projector that thinks it's on. <laughs> Yeah, it's being blanked. Right. When it's not on, so I need to talk. So... Can we try switching to a laptop? We don't need a laptop here. That's I have a laptop. Yeah, we can use that. Okay, just for diagnostic? Yeah. Alright. I'm so sorry. That's right. I don't know why it's happening. It happened last time. It worked so beautifully. Oh, did it? What, it happened last time. What did you do to fix it last time? All we did was... The, the problem was that I had told them that if they broke it up, it would wake up, and it did, but that doesn't seem to be the problem to them. Yes. This is more for diagnostic at this point. But over to the left side, please. You have to tell this thing to. Yeah, I can just play a PDF. So hang on, I'm going to have to do something. I am very sorry indeed. Were you running this on a Mac yeah, or a okay, PC? So uh, we're running it off there. We're running it yeah. off the system right. here. Okay. Yeah. Agreed. And it worked yeah. beautifully until right. Of course. Ago. Yeah. Of course. And then I apologize. What's happened is they just installed three weeks ago a brand new system. Yeah. And we said, now there's no bugs, right? And they said, no, no, no. We've got it all down. We figured it all out. And now you are the victim of. <laughs> <laughs> Shake down the bruise. Exactly. Well, but the point is, we you know, we have not had this kind of trouble before. Uh, we did have somebody, we had somebody from the booth put up the screen the way you did yeah, yeah. about three yeah. weeks ago, yeah. but that was because she just reached out and hit the wrong button. Um, I apologize. Fortunately, you are you are not unused to public speaking. 
no, 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 Terry has said that he'd be very happy to tell a mountain story if we need, <laughs> <laughs> if we need one. So, and and, and we can do that too. Oh, it's completely shut down. So it looks like we're going to go to this. Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, Mr. Carter, do you have a uh, USB stick with the slides on it? Yes. May, That's I, a good answer. may I copy them? Sure. Okay. Thank you. We're going to stick them on here and hook this up to that projector yeah. and see if that works. Do you have Adobe Reader or Acrobat on here? I have it's a PDF. So. I believe I have Adobe Reader and may have some other. If, if PDF not, there are. Readers. If not, there are two Macs in a yeah, bag right there. Okay, that might be even better. Yeah, someone can bring up a... Oh, good. Oh, good. Even better. Yeah, put that thing up. Sure. Sorry. 
so, so the question is, the laptop's going to need to get closer to that, right? Yeah. So one of us can drive. You can say next slide, please. Is that okay? Uh, you would rather drive yourself. Two-thirds of the screen only shown. So we'll need to change the resolution. But this way you can, this way you'll be able to go from here. As I was saying, um, <laughs> I can't bear to do my introduction again, but so we'll just jump in. Um, this is the first project to, uh, for me to talk about. When I was hired by Linotype in 65, uh, uh, I moved to Brooklyn. And the reason was that by then, photocomposition had become established commercially. And the linotype people had done most of the job of converting 
the hot metal nanotype library to, uh, to film. So there's an opportunity to sort of step back and say, did this new technology, film, allow us to do anything that for technical reasons had been impossible in, uh, in metal type? Among the very first things that uh, occurred to Mike Parker, my boss and me, was script types, because on the linotype machine, uh, a sort of formal script that was steeply slanted and where the letters joined was just completely impossible. I mean, nobody even tried it. But with the line of film, the, uh, the new machine, the new technology, it was very doable. So even before I got to Brooklyn, when, uh, when I was still in London, I did what I always do, got some typographic issue to think about. I went to some bride printing library and looked up examples of the work of English writing masters looking for a source for a new uh, formal script face, round hand uh, script. And I found uh, immediately Ambrose Hill's book on the English writing masters and this illustration in particular, which is from a, a, a man called Charles Snell, taught handwriting in, and accountancy in London, produced a number of books. Uh, they were not printed from type, they were copper engraved uh, books and the, these were manuals, you know, you, this is how you were supposed to learn to write the English round hand, which was the sort of standard commercial mercantile hand <clears throat> until the introduction of the uh, typewriter. So I found this extraordinary plate <clears throat> from one of Snell's books, 1714. Um, and you see the upper part of this slide, these incredibly meticulous geometrical diagrams that he had uh, produced for... Yeah, good, it's working. Um, <laughs> You know, you're supposed to be able to write this with a quill pen. How the hell would you ever do that? It must have been impossible to do this. But when I looked at these, you know, me as a type designer, I thought, well, thank you. I mean, this is just perfect. I mean, it's a, it's a gift. So when I got off the plane in Brooklyn and New York in the fall of 65, I had a lot of stats of uh, Snell with me and was, you know, ready to roll uh, with, uh, with what became called Snell Roundhand in honor of... Uh, of uh, Snell. So there's an, um, yet another enlargement. Imagine trying to wield your quill pen in such a way as to do that. Absolutely impossible. So there's an enlargement of, uh, of Snell, and here is Snell Roundhand. I've drawn in these uh, vertical bars here to indicate the counting width of the characters. You know, here's an F and here's an F. In the line of type machine, the F could not have gone beyond these borders because it was a piece of props. But in film, as you can see, the F swings way out beyond its uh, counting body into the space uh, before it and, and behind it. It turns in both directions, in other words. So this uh, design, Snow Roundhand, was really a sort of celebration of, a, of an emancipation from the constraints of metal type. Um, and it was, as you can imagine, great, uh, great fun to, uh, to work on at the time. This perhaps explains that extraordinary geometrical diagram. As I said, Snell taught accountancy. These, these guys taught handwriting and, uh, and mathematics. So the full title of one of his books was, you know, mathematically demonstrating how better alphabets, he said, may be performed. As I say, it was asking a lot of a scribe. But for me, it was just a gift. 
This is a, a later on, a few years later, I did two bolder weights of Snell, uh, bold and the black. And this is a preliminary drawing, a sketch for those. Although actually it is not, it is a complete lie. Uh, as those of you who are curators and librarians know, there are almost no genuine preliminary drawings for typefaces. What happens is you design a typeface and you never make idiotic drawings like this at all, they're useless. But then somebody says in the marketing department, says, you know, I'll promote this typeface, where are your preliminary drawings? Or some nice person says, I want to review this in a magazine, where are your preliminary drawings? So you then have to make the preliminary drawings <laughs> after you make So these are post-preliminary drawings. Um, and as I say, uh, I, I hope there's no one here who thinks they own any preliminary drawings to typefaces because uh, I, I'm here to tell you they're probably not what you think they are. Uh, uh, they're uh, post-rationalisation. Yeah, you don't really need to see that. That's just the alphabet. 1966 it came out. Yes, this, this you do need to see. This is a, a, a favourite thing of mine. It, it's framed on my wall at home. Um, this is one of the drawings from Snell. Uh, finished in uh, August of 66. I guess the, the letter is about five inches high. <laughs> and it's drawn on scratchboard, which is what we did in those days. And evidently, l- luckily after the font was made, some klutz in the, in the factory got uh, red opaque fluid over this drawing. And they sent it back to me to fix up. No doubt I meant to do so. Meanwhile, I you know, tossed it in a drawer or something or other and forgot about it and only found it a couple of years ago. Meanwhile, in some time, I don't know when, early 80s, Linotype gave up supporting their photo machines because everything had gone digital, and the entire department went into the dumpster, including all of my drawings, not just for Snell, but for several other typefaces. So this is not only the single surviving drawing from Snell Roundhead, it's the single surviving drawing from a whole rather productive uh, period of my life. And again, those of you who are concerned with... uh, preserving this stuff uh, will understand me when I say that the only reason any typographic material has survived is because somebody forgot to throw it away. I mean, nobody deliberately preserved anything in our business at all. Uh, They did so because they were too lazy to to scrap it. So Snell Roundhand was a historical revival, as you see, but not of a typeface. Snell never designed a typeface. He just produced these exquisite, uh, as did many other writing masters of the period, these exquisite writing, handwriting manuals. Um, so, but the next project I'll talk about really did have, uh, it really was a revival of a, <coughs> of a typeface, or at least a bunch of typefaces. These are the three largest sizes of type from the Caslin foundry, dating, I guess, from the 1730s. The capitals, all three sizes of capitals, are known to have been made in in the foundry. (coughs) Of the lower cases, the smallest one, cloudy scene down the bottom, was actually cut by Joseph Moxon in the previous century and adopted by the uh, Kazans. Where the other two lower cases came from, we do not know. I mean, it's been suggested they too were borrowed. (coughs) If so, we don't know from whom. But as you can see, look at the word members up there, the, the the lowercase m. It's kind of strange. It's too big and it's too heavy. It's a very, you know, the, the, these large sizes are spirited, but they are very eccentric. Um, particularly the, the, the largest uh, of them. In the 1880s, these uh, three faces were recut 
ownership of the Castleham Foundry had passed uh, from the family to a man whose real name was Thomas Smith, but he changed it to Castleham Enterprisingly. And he did a good job, I think, in uh, as he recut these faces in not over-regularising the originals. Um, and when I came to do Big Caslam, I actually based it more on the recutting, more on the 19th century recutting that you're looking here, than the 18th century source. I think if I had gone back to the true 18th century source, the previous slide, in the search for total authenticity, I think I would have made a typeface of very limited usefulness, the sort of ye olde pastiche, faux naïve. So Big Chasm, as I say, is really a revival of a revival. This is my only text slide. Accuracy is not the truth. I'm not sure that Henri Matisse was thinking of uh, <coughs> type when he said this, but this has always been a sort of mantra for me, and a, a license for interpretation. I think the danger in type of trying to be too literal, trying to be too authentic, is that you end up with taxidermy, something which looks lifelike on the outside, but is just kind of sawdust on the inside. <coughs> and type needs skeletons and guts and all those good things. So I've never been um, someone who, who, who has tried to, uh, to, to match uh, a, a historical typeface exactly I, I think it's very difficult to do the job of a, of a type reviver I think is to sort of steer a line between crudeness on the one hand saw in the previous slide and blandness on the other I mean the pitfalls of being crude or being boring and you have to try and find a way between I think of historical types as being like musical scores we have scores composed by Garamond by Caslon, by Bodoni, everyone we can read them and we can play them. But we can't really reproduce exactly, I think, we can't reproduce exactly the Caslon score, say, as it sounded plays on, played on the harpsichord in Mr. and Mrs. Caslon's parlour in London in the 1750s. Each Caslon reviver who comes along, I'm only one of them, performs Caslon differently in their own time and place. And I think there are qualities associated with performance that are more important than strict fidelity which is probably unattainable anyway. Put it another way, history is in constant rewrite. George Steiner said a thing I like. He said, each performance of a symphony is also a critique of that symphony. I like that remark. The reviver nowadays has also, of course, to be a sort of amplifier, a completer, to furnish all sorts of new characters that contemporary computer typesetting requires. So Big Chasm, when I was working on it, I had to provide all kinds of things that William uh, didn't have to bother with in his day. There's another slide, <coughs> fractions and, you know, all manner of, uh, of accented characters and, uh, and so on down the bottom there. Uh, if you're lucky and you produce a new, uh, a new type, some magazine will pick it up and give it a good run for its money. Uh, Rolling Stone has done that for me more than once. This, I think, was Wallpaper Magazine, redesigned itself a few years ago and picked up, uh, picked up Big Caslin. Um, I did go slightly sort of over the top when it came to ligatures in the italic. Um, uh, I, I feel slightly apologetic for some of that, but there are people who enjoy it. This is a place of pilgrimage for me. Uh, it's in St. Luke's Churchyard in Old Street, City of London. 
it is the Caslin family tomb. Uh, it's the memorial to William and, and various members of his family. When I took this photograph, as you can see, it had been badly damaged by a falling tree limb, I think, in a storm. Uh, it looked very sad, although the sort of railing had done its job because it protected the, the uh, tomb itself. Um, I was very happy to see later on on James Mosley's blog, uh, James, someone I'm sure familiar to many of you, who's taken part in this program many times. Um, he put up this photograph to show that the local authority had done an extremely good job of restoring the Caslin tomb. So Caslin's tomb has been restored and his type has been revived. This, of course, is as it should be. So my next uh, chapter, my next project, is the one that Michael referred to. <coughs> and you can see uh, why it has some local interest in the name of this typeface, Monticello. Here's the story. In 1943, um, the Princeton University Press uh, announced a massive publishing venture, the papers of Thomas Jefferson. The first volume came out in 1950. I think they were up to 30s, oh, no, 38, I think, by now. And they planned to finish in 2026, which is the 200th anniversary of the death of uh, Jefferson. The announcement was made in the New York Times because the Salzburger family, the owners of the Times, bankrolled this uh, publication. This was the days when newspapers made money. Um, <laughs> so one of the people who saw this announcement was C.H. Griffith, Chauncey Griffith, <coughs> a vice president at Liner Type in Brooklyn, and the man in charge of the typographic policy. And he suggested that Liner Type should, made, should make a special typeface for, uh, for this, uh, this publication. Uh, obviously, a job of that size, you really had to set it by machine. You couldn't handset all these volumes. <coughs> so it pretty much had to be a, a liner typeface. And uh, Griffith suggested, and the idea was accepted by Princeton, uh, that he should make a liner type version of an existing face called Oxford. Now, Oxford uh, originated with the foundry that uh, Michael mentioned, <coughs> Benny and Rolfson, two Scotsmen. They started here in uh, 1796, I think. <coughs> they were not the first type founders in this country, <coughs> but they were the first who didn't immediately go out of business. In fact, they did very well in the end. Um, uh, when Arch Binney retired, I can't remember the exact date, uh, it was uh, sold his share in the business and bought a spread in Maryland of uh, 5,000 acres, which is the same acreage, I notice, as uh, Monticello. So he did extremely well. Very few people in the history of typefounding have made anything approaching a, a fortune, as you may know. Uh, the only reason we know anything about Gutenberg is from the records of the bankruptcy court. And uh, same is true of some of my predecessors. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the faces that uh, Benny and Ronaldson produced um, survived uh, in three different sizes and showed up um, uh, very much later uh, at American Type Founders, ATF. ATF was a consortium of American type founders who came together in the 1890s because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't, they were no longer viable uh, as competitors, so they pulled their resources and made one big uh, conglomerate. And uh, ATF reduced, uh, produced this face, as I say, in three sizes, called Oxford, 
and it was quite successful. It was used by some very distinguished American book designers, and Bruce Rogers, and most notably by Daniel Berkeley Updike, who set his magisterial printing types, their history, form, and uses in the Oxford type, a book that obviously is the sort of Bible for, for people like myself. So you know, I'm very familiar with that face and liked it very much. So the project for, uh, for Griffith was to <coughs> render Oxford uh, a foundry type, a handset type, as a linotype face. And notice in that slide, you see how both the italic and the, the Roman alphabets are the same length, capital and lowercase. This is, um, you know, the, 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 there is some price for the convenience of the linotype system, for the economies of machine composition. <coughs> and one of them is what was called duplexing, which is forcing the italic to be on the same width as the Roman. Uh, I'll show you an example of that in a minute. <coughs> this is a linotype drawing, about uh, 17 by 14. You can guess, guess the scale from the pencil there. Wrong reading, pencil outline. It looks like an engineering blueprint, and that is just exactly what it is. Um, you know, Michael last night was warning us all <coughs> to wash our hands before we handle the treasures in the rare book school. Um, you will see, I think, on that drawing, uh, the beauty of what happens when you don't wash your hands. Uh, there is a wonderful patina on those uh, sheets of paper from constant use. Uh, and no one in the linotype factory had clean hands, I can uh, assure you. I mean, you should do what Michael says, but uh, <laughs> uh, to me, you know, I, uh, I have a different background from you, Frederick. I, I started work in a type foundry and then went to work in a factory. And if your hands are clean in type foundry, you're goofing off, you know. You, uh, <laughs> uh, I came up with, uh, with dirty hands, uh, and there's a lot of uh, sweat and tears in that nice piece of paper. Um, Every one of these uh, uh, folios of drawings had a, a sheet in the bottom. And you can see the history of this. They started in 1944. Uh, Mr. Griffith provided proofs of Oxford. And the projector scope was a massive enlarger. It occupied a whole room <coughs> where you could go from, from the actual type size to the drawing size, which I showed in the previous slide. Um, masses of information on those uh, sheets. This is a hard slide to see, but you're actually looking at a linotype mat, matrix. Um, and you see that there are two letters stamped into the face of it. They happen to be FL uh, ligatures. And you see what I mean by them having to be the same width, Roman and mechanic. They're on the same piece of brass. They can't be anything different. Um, the reason for that was that it was very convenient for the linotype operator sh to shift from Roman to italic. If you had to change to another face or another size, you had to change the magazine on the linotype machine, and that was a pain in the neck to have to do that. But this was very, very simple uh, operation. Here is the drawing of the original linotype F in the Italian of uh, Monticello. <coughs> and it's a very odd and deformed-looking thing, necessarily, because as I was saying about Snell, it, there's no way this F could sort of go outside the, the brass body. In time, of course, uh, with photocomposition and with digital type, it was possible to go back and revive, uh, or revise, I should say, these uh, 
these forms that were distorted in the interests of linotype composition. <coughs> Here's a much more elegant looking and a much more faithful looking uh, F uh, that would have come along many years later when, uh, when as I say, the, the technology changed and those linotype constraints became completely irrelevant, obsolete. Much nicer letter, turning uh, forwards and backwards. So everything was fine at the Princeton University Press as long as they continued to set these Jefferson volumes uh, on the linotype machine. But then I think they changed to a digital machine, linotronic or something, and then they wanted to go, uh, being a you know, forward-thinking uh, enterprise, uh, to postscript fonts. And linotype had not made postscript fonts in Monticello, so they got some outfit to convert their digital data into postscript, and this was the result. Uh, this is not a good letter, I'm, I'm here to tell you. Um, it's made up entirely of straight line segments. Um, there's various other things wrong with it if you look through the whole font. So Princeton University Press and the person of Chuck Creasy came to me and asked me if I could do better than this. And um, I, I was so arrogant just to say I thought I could. Um, but it was not a simple job. What, what, I, uh, what I had to do was to make a postscript uh, outline description of Monticello and try to make it look as close as possible to the original metal Monticello that Griffith had produced. And this is not, this is not an easy job, I may say. Um, the danger is that, well, you know, you, if, you, if you print from metal relief letterpress, the impression is more than a kiss. There is a squeeze in addition to a kiss. The, the ink spreads a little bit. If you print a digital image by offset lithography, there is only a kiss. There is no squeeze. In the old country, they used to say, what is it? A kiss without the squeeze is like apple pie without the cheese or something rather. So I, I had to kind of put the, the, the cheese or the squeeze back into this uh, typeface. And it was, it was hard to do. But let me, let me first show you uh, an enlargement of uh, Billy's uh, design. Um, it is a very odd typeface when you look at it closely. Uh, Griffith, when, when Monticello was released, uh, wrote uh, the following. The principal key to the matter is the lively variety in serif shapes and their bracketing to the stems. Quite unlike the technique of contemporary designers who follow a uniform pattern of serif and fillet, Billy goes almost to the other extreme in disregard of such uniformity. The overall effect is recognised by many as an artistic achievement that has not been excelled by any type cutter before or since Billy's time. The variant serif motif was achieved through a premeditated and well-executed plan of design. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, if you look at the top left-hand corner of the uh, letters in the upper line, extraordinary variety in the, in, the, in the forms there. Now, Griffith said this was deliberate and premeditated. Maybe not. Maybe this was a guy in a hurry uh, who was perhaps not the most skillful punch cutter who has ever lived. Uh, but either way, I, I don't mean to dump on Billy. The fact of the matter is 
that, you know, whether this was achieved deliberately or by sort of nonchalance in the production, it is a very agreeable, pleasant typeface to read. And I, my hat is off to the people at Linotype because I think they did capture this sort of variability within Binet's design, uh, and, and the different sizes, mind you, um, uh, quite, quite well. And it's a, the result is a very, very likable uh, typeface, ex- eccentric as it is. So when I came to do this uh, uh, job of adding weight, I found that I could not just add it uniformly all around the sort of bare metal outline <clears throat> by sort of dipping it in chocolate. That looked terrible. I found I had to add weight very selectively. Uh, and this is a diagram that shows the sort of raw metal uh, linotype drawing, if you like, and what I produce, uh, trying to get this type to look better in its digital form. And as you see, I did add weight, but I added much more weight on the horizontal strokes, the surface and so on. There is weight there. And if you look up there, I bit the crotch in deeper too because I didn't want to lose definition. As I say, the dipped in chocolate look is really very unpleasant in type. Um, so, you know, I, I, this whole project that Princeton gave me, there was a very modest budget to speaking of typefinders, couldn't make big fortunes, but, um, but I was very interested in it because uh, I, you know, I had to do a lot of trial setting to try and get this right. And I don't flatter myself that, uh, that the recent um, volumes of the Jefferson papers uh, are as good typographically as the very first ones. But I do think, if I may say so, I shouldn't, that they are improvement on, on the sort of intermediate state that uh, uh, that they came to me uh, uh, to complain of. Jefferson loved fractions, sprinkled with fractions everywhere. So I had to make a special sort of fraction font. And you know, it's not very hard to do fractions when the numerators and denominators are the same. When you've got two and three, it's a little trickier, I can tell you. It took some time to work. One other thing just noted, CTA combination is current. You wouldn't have found that in, in, in Linotype or, or in, uh, in Oxford in the middle type. <clears throat> but I thought it was uh, worth doing in the, in the postscript version. There were also lots of lovely things that, uh, that, that Jefferson scribbled as he, uh, <clears throat> as he wrote his papers and his correspondence. You see some of them there. Uh, the act used in its you know, pre-email address meaning of uh, commercial act pound, LB. Uh, this, little, this, of course, is per. This lovely squiggly P is per. Um, there's, a, there's a leave. Yes, you see this? LT leave pronoun. This, this was an uh, obsolete French currency. I didn't think there were coins any longer, even at, uh, in the early 19th century. But it was still used for accounting purposes. CWT is, is 100 grade, of course. So, again, I had to shoehorn a bunch of non-standard characters into this uh, font that was uh, actually quite amusing to do. This is... um, um, I don't know how well you can see this slide. You know, in very early typefaces, the ampersand was treated as a lowercase letter. Over time, it sort of grew into a capital letter. Nowadays, I suppose that makes sense because it's used in 
you know, names of businesses and uh, so on, where it really does have to sort of sort with the capitals. So the ampersand in, uh, in uh, Monticello is, is faithful reproduction of, uh, of Binney's, but of course it was used constantly by Jefferson, who never wrote the word and out, A-N-D. Um, and when you see it in with the lowercase, it has a very spotty effect. But you know, after it looks too heavy, too big, too big. Um, so sort of after the fact, I rather regretted that I hadn't made a, a smaller and neater uh, ampersand. Too late now. But you learn these things, you know, when, when you when you come to look at the, you get the feedback, as it were. Uh, other things uh, occur to you. Um, so that you know, if I if I had to do this again, I I, I made a <coughs> a lowercase ampersand uh, for this particular typeface, something you don't meet every day. So my last uh, project to talk about, uh, continuing our tour of the uh, Ivy League, uh, this is Yale. Um, <coughs> I don't have any kind of college degree at all, so it was great fun for me, but. Um, I taught at Yale in the graphic design school for God, I know, 30 something years and a few years ago the present uh, uh, printer to the university, John Gamble who I met originally when he was a student asked me to design a typeface for Yale, not for the press not for the university press, but for the university at large for the admin people for faculty, students anyone bona fide member of the academic community at Yale can download this typeface and use it. So John asked me to do two versions of it. One for printing and uh, for, for the web, and then another one, a different version, uh, for signs on campus. Um, I don't know this university well enough to know whether any of your buildings have their names on them. But God forbid you should have to find a building at Yale. You have to ask on every corner. None of them have their names on them. Um, it's, but, but they've changed that. I mean, they've now got some signs. And of these two versions, the print and the, what we call street, the sign uh, for, the, for the signs, campus signs, uh, the, the latter was the more urgent because they'd already started thinking about uh, these, uh, these signs. So that was the one I kind of had to work on first. <clears throat> you know, and they'd already decided that the, the signs would be principally in capital letters. Now, this, this may sound strange, but this was an odd priority for me because I think type designers, of the Latin alphabet, think of capitals principally as being initials for words otherwise in lowercase. Obviously, you can use them for words all in caps. The Romans invented them for words all in caps and they look very fine. But, you know, that's sort of subsidiary use of them, but for signs, not so. So I got to thinking about this whole, you know, we say the Latin alphabet. We have two alphabets. There's a big one and a small one. Some of the letters are the same, some are kind of similar, some have nothing whatever to do with one another. And getting some sort of sympathy between these two alphabets in the same typeface is an absolutely enduring problem. I mean, every type designer goes through this every time we try and design a Latin typeface. Getting these two things into some sort of synthesis is very hard. And the earliest Roman faces, 
of the incunabular period were, in my opinion, you know, seldom successful at doing that. At doing that, the caps stand out like a sore thumb. The first typeface, uh, in my view, to achieve this was produced for Aldous Minutius in 1495 in Venice. This is an example of it. Um, and the secret of this, I think, by the way, just because I was talking about this, you see how the ampersand in the fourth line down is smaller than the capital? This was back in the days when the ampersand was really treated still as necessarily being uh, used with the, with the lower case. A very good example of what I was blaming myself for uh, just now. Anyway, um, this typeface appeared in a, in a small, very undistinguished-looking book called De Etna, about Etna. It was the work of Pietro Bembo. He wrote it when he was still a student. He was learning Greek in, uh, in Sicily. His father, who was a Venetian diplomat, came to visit him, and they walked up Etna. And young uh, Pietro wrote a little uh, essay uh, about their expedition. Uh, it's a very inconsequential uh, piece of literature. I don't think the volcanologists have ever paid it much attention, but um, it was printed by Aldous as, in, in my view, we, we don't actually know why, but in my view, it was as a trial of this typeface. And within this little book, um, there are several versions, alternative versions of some of the lowercase letters. So it's really Aldous and his punch cutter, Francesco Griffo from Bologna, inventing Latin type, really, and trying out different forms. And I think what Aldous had in mind was to give this little book, you know, it's small, it's about five inches by three, to his friends, you know, in his artistic and literary circle in the Veneto, and say, hey, do you like this E with the horizontal bar, or do you like this E with the oblique bar? What do you think? You know? um, probably the idea that they would then remove the less popular forms uh, and sort of standardise on it, but they never did. I mean, they printed some other books in this, but all of these alternative characters are still in there in a kind of fascinating way. So why, you know, I, thinking about this whole mess of synthesising caps and lowercase, I thought about De Etna, and in the Beinecke Library at Yale, they have a copy of De Etna, not a book you see every day. So I was able to go and pore over this, uh, <laughs> over this uh, little book and uh, uh, examine the, uh, the, the latter forms. Um, it's, you know, to me, this is the archetype of type. I mean, every, every, every Latin type, that has, every Roman type uh, that uh, we have uh, followed this and is really a development of this, uh, <coughs> of this design. So it was great to, to have in front of me the, the, the original of this at, uh, at Yale. So I produced a, a, a typeface. And in addition to this kind of, I mean, there are probably only three people in all of Yale that know that there is a copy of Dayetna in Beinecke. Me and John and someone else. I mean, I don't know. But... Um, there was another reason to, to like this Aldine model for Yale. One of the typefaces they had used in the past was monotype Bembo, which was also derived from that very same book. Um, 
the digital version of Benmo is too light, to my way of thinking. So one of the things we did with the Yale face was to beef it up a bit. But you can probably see there's some sort of family resemblance between those two, <coughs> two typefaces. So there's a little bit of a sort of rather tenuous precedent of using an all-time design for Yale. As I said, almost no buildings at Yale have their names on them. The prevailing architectural style at Yale uh, is Gothic revival, is it ever? Um, and the few buildings that have their names on them have them in Gothic capitals like this. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, the capitals are lovely. It's been damaged. And in order to take this photograph, I had to have someone come pull the bushes back so I could actually see this thing, you know? They're to totally ob uh, obscure. Um, you know, uh, somebody told me that Frank Lloyd Wright, when he would, went to Yale, insisted on staying in a room in the Harkness Tower. The Harkness Tower is this colossal Gothic tower right in the middle of the campus because it was the only place from which he could not see the Harkness Tower. You know, it's, 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 it gives you a sense of, of the, the architectural style of Yale. Uh, so here's, here's, a, yeah, here's, here's the new face in action. Uh, new signs uh, on the campus at Yale to help, to help us find our way around. Um, and you see, the, you know, the, the principally in, in capitals, the lowercase has a sort of subsidiary role. The, the, the opposite priority than is instinctive to people like me. Um, and, you know, I, it seemed to me that, that since the Roman capitals began as inscriptional forms, Signs are very much like inscriptions. I mean, you know, they, you stick them on the wall or they're freestanding on a signboard or something like that. They, rather, they are like tombstones or memorial plaques, lettered, as I say, mostly in mostly capitals. This is a comparison of the two versions that I mentioned in this place. <clears throat> and if I hadn't kind of spoiled the story by telling you this ahead of time, and I showed you this slide. Those of you who are typographically astute would, I'm sure, think that this was indeed the print version, sort of normally portion version of this typeface. And this one, looking up the top, you would say, oh, that, that's very much uh, obviously for small sizes. This is for footnotes. Um, because the letters are a little bit heavier, uh, the contrast thin is different, the lowercase excite is greater, there's more space between the letters. All of these are symptoms of a typeface intended for use of tiny sizes. Well, you would actually be wrong, but you'd be very intelligent, because there is an odd paradox paradoxical similarity between type for very small sizes and type for very big sizes on, on science. The reason is this, of course, that neither of them are read in ideal uh, circumstances, ideal environments. You, know, you never see a sign for the first time in front of your face. You see it in the distance, you see it coming around the corner, you see it at night, you see it from the windows of a bus, you see it driving past at 70 miles an hour. Um, you never see a sign initially in an ideal situation. So these compensatory things are done just as they are done for tiny type to make signs <coughs> more readable at first glance, uh, as it were. So, yeah, here is, um, 
here we are outside the Beinecke Library with a new sign and the eager students lining up to look at the day at uh, in some <laughs> Well, God bless Yale, you know, from having no signs on the campus at all, <laughs> this typeface has now gone viral. You can't get away from it. Here is no parking sign. Or reserved parking, I'm sorry. This is cast in bronze, <laughs> if you please. I've never had a typeface cast in bronze before. <laughs> I'm so proud. <laughs> so anyway, this is, I took this photograph, the Yale University security, because the T is falling off the word security. It's an insecure T. <laughs> I informed the authorities who had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's very nice when you've designed a typeface. <clears throat> and as I was saying earlier, some nice magazine or so, someone picks it up or it shows up in a, in a, in a handsome book. Um, but my little epiphany, I think, for the L typeface happened when I was wandering down Chapel Street one day. I said this. <laughs> you know... You feel that when your typeface is on the trash barrels, it kind of has arrived, you know. It's been, it's been assimilated in, into the culture of the place. And more so particularly, perhaps, this. I mean, uh, <laughs> a recycling bin. There seems to be a very nice symmetry here, you know. We recycle our cans and bottles. We recycle our type. We make a difference, as the slogan says. We shouldn't just trash a typeface because it's whatever it is, 515 years old. We should revive it, revitalize it. There are centuries of good use left in it uh, yet. <laughs> when I got this far in this talk, without saying Otsov, on the shoulders of giants, uh, the point of that analogy, which has become a sort of cliche among type revivers, <clears throat> to express our debt to our hugely illustrious forebears, actually implies more than that. It's a sort of metaphor. It means that however gigantic the giant on whose shoulders you are perched, and however puny your own stature, still the sum of your combined heights puts you at an elevation from which you can see further than the giant can. This is simple trigonometry. That further may only be a step or two, but for me, we tiny sedulous apes have a responsibility to use that little fraction of elevation, that advantage, as we stand on the shoulders of giants. And that advantage nowadays, I think, is mostly a technical one. Well, I'm not sure that this is the best illustration of the advances in, uh, in, in typography uh, in the last 500 years. And it's hard to know what uh, uh, Pietro Bembo would have made of all of this. Here he is as a very eminent cardinal in old age. Um, or more pertinently, what Aldous and Griffo, his type founder, would have thought. Of course, I don't know the answer, but fatuous as it may sound, I do sort of worry about that. I, I, I feel ghosts looking over my shoulder. <clears throat> a very private hang-up. Uh, as I say, you know, you, you, you can admire Dayetna all by yourself in the Beinecke and no one else <laughs> knows it's there. If you design a typeface of entirely your own concoction, that's even possible. There's no one else's reputation is harmed if you screw up. 
But when you borrow something, however remotely, I think you take on some obligations of stewardship, some accountability. Accountability to whom? To ghosts? Well, not, not, not exactly. Accountability to a tradition of trying to advance the state of the art, to innovate to the degree that it's possible. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end with a quote. Um, tradition is not a matter for traditionalists. They produce traditionalism, which is of no use. Tradition is produced by true innovators who keep it alive. That was said by Franz Zayer uh, in a little book that I recommend called Rightness and Lightness. He's a Swiss bookbinder. And I think that's something to aspire to, that reviving should be more than mere resuscitation. You know, it means adding something new to the old. So what I try to do myself and what I advocate is that you, know, you should acknowledge your debt and try and contribute something of your own. So thank you. Anyone still awake? Yes. My question is about numbers. When you're designing a typeface, as you said, for printing, say, memos versus buildings, I noticed that the addresses were in lowercase and that the numbers matched. What is the decision making process behind that? Uh, it's involved, you know. <clears throat> Originally, all numbers what are generally known nowadays as old style. I mean, they were considered like uh, lowercase characters. Um, more recently, well, I would say probably in the 18-teens, uh, typefounders began including two sets of figures in their typefaces, the, the ones we described, the old style ones, and then a set of figures that were all the same height, sometimes the same height as the capitals, sometimes a bit smaller, but anyway, of uniform height, a set of figures of uniform height. And over time, these became the standard. Uh, most typefaces, you know, when I first <coughs> was involved at Linotype and so on, <coughs> all the Linotype faces, <coughs> as far as I know, had these so-called modern figures, lining figures. Since then, um, people have gone back to a certain extent to the, 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 the two set of figure models and which you use where is entirely up to you I mean a, a, bit, a bit in the same way that I was complaining how 
the Monticello ampersand stands out in <coughs> lowercase composition. If you use big figures in, in, in certain texts, you know, Michael mentioned Sports Illustrated, whom I did some work some years ago. Sports Illustrated, the text is full of numbers, you know, stats and weights and heights and scores and everything. And if you use big numbers, the page gets terribly spotty and unsightly. So I designed some sort of hybrid numbers for, uh, for that particular typeface. And, you know, for the addresses and the Yale signs that are set in that case, I think it would be natural to use the old-style figures. If you needed, uh, I don't think I... Occasionally figures do come in the capital part of the, of the sign. Of <coughs> that, I'm sure they would use uh, cap-high figures, the, the line of which I did for the typeface. I mean, I made both, both sets. I think we can go to dinner. <laughs> yes, someone at the back. Yes. It's a good question. I, I think what happens is, uh, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, I sort of marinate myself in the original, you know, uh, and in the course of redrawing all the letters that do exist, working on them, I think by some sort of osmosis, you acquire a feeling for the workmanship of whoever it was that, <coughs> that you are reviving. And I think by the time you've done that, when it comes to doing, you know, a dollar sign or something which wasn't in <coughs> Catalan's type, for example, <coughs> you, you, you probably have a sort of a, a, a sense of channeling how he would have done it, if you see what I mean. Um, this doesn't sound very scientific, and it's not, but that's the best way I can describe the process. You, you just have to... Yeah, ma marinate yourself in, in the in in the work, and try and understand uh, understand the, the, how the person thought about uh, about their work. Yeah, it's not it's not foolproof, but it's how I do. Yeah. It's not easy always. Yeah. Yes. Seems like you have successfully bridged the worlds of the academic. And the practical, as a person who has spent his life working in tight boundaries and working with the commercial institutions and corporations which were involved in creating typefaces and selling them to those people who were selling their hands with the object of making money. Yes. Um, I just wondered if you could comment on those two different worlds and the academic and the yes. Uh, uh, you know, in some ways, happy as I am to be here, believe me, I, I've loved this, uh, this visit, um, I feel like a bit of an interloper in a way, because, you know, my background, I think of myself as an industrial designer, frankly, uh, and much of my work, some of it Michael <coughs> mentioned in his uh, introduction, has been concerned with things like phone books and body type for newspapers, <coughs> legibility of type on screens, and so on. <coughs> Very humdrum stuff. Uh, not the sort of thing that attracts 
people who are interested in the world of, uh, of fine printing or uh, rare books or fine bindings and, uh, and so on. Um, the academic world, um, you know, I, I mentioned uh, my debt, I, I should have mentioned it more, to the St. Bride Printing Library in London, uh, which uh, I have uh, used um, all, all my life, really. And James Mosley, who uh, I mentioned has often been here, uh, is a sort of lifelong friend. And I have benefited enormously from his scholarship and from the scholarship of other academics and so on. My, my attitude to, to academic history is really predatory. You know, I, I look at it for things I can use. I'm not a scholar. Uh, I'm not a historian, as you've gathered from my talk. But I admire uh, those people and, you know, many, many typographic scholars, bibliographers and so on are my friends. Um, how much we have in common is always a thing that we uh, can argue about. Um, but I, you know, my, my, as I was saying, my, I come from the sort of dirty hands uh, side of this rather than the well-washed hands uh, that, that you all have. Um, not that there's a moral judgment in that. <laughs> Just how things played out, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a good question you asked me and I, 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 I'm very conscious of, uh, of um, my debt to uh, to the academic uh, the academic world and its and its resources. Yeah. Yes. In this in this matter of having to add the squeeze to uh, to a digital type when moving from metal, uh, you you articulated a a challenge that you face that that uh, lay people probably wouldn't have guessed existed. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to the future and the emergence of. Um, whatever the next digital typographically related technology might be, and what other challenges we might face. <clears throat> I once asked a question like this to a guy from IBM. He said, no next questions. <laughs> 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 this is a next question, I can see. It's almost a next big thing question. But, uh, um, I don't really know. I mean, you know, everyone now is excited about web fonts. Um, I got involved in this a long time, well, mid-90s, working for Microsoft. And there's been a strange period. You know, I'm very unpopular with web designers because I did Vadana in Georgia, and those are two of a very small number of typefaces that <coughs> really do work on the screen. Uh, and web designers have got sick of me because, you know, they want many more typefaces that will work on the screen. And so they are, oh, God, not Vadana again, and so on. But we're just on the, uh, on the sort of tipping point uh, where there is a new business model, a new technical model to get far more typefaces onto the web, web type. Uh, different people have different approaches to it. Um, but all of us are kind of concerned with this at the moment. And, you know, quite honestly, how, how this works out in terms of quality standards and so on I think it's really too early to say. You know, when I, when I was approached by Microsoft in about 93 with the idea of doing what became Madonna and Georgia, <clears throat> I said, 
this is a big mistake, a big philosophical mistake. You must not design a typeface for any particular technology. It will be a self-obsoleting typeface because the technology advances, leaves your design behind. This had happened to me with the coming of photocomposition. It happened to me with the coming of digital type. I designed special typefaces to mitigate the problems of those technologies in their early stages. So what happened? The engineers fixed everything. My typefaces were thrown out. They all went back to Helvetica and Times. Quite right, too. Um, but, you know, the Microsoft people said, well, we've got news for you. We're going to be stuck with uh, this present computer screen uh, uh, resolution for quite a while. And they were right. I mean... 15 years have gone by. Uh, screen resolutions have improved a little bit. Photometric resolutions have improved a whole lot. Uh, Anti-aliasing and clear type and all these things have improved type on screen uh, a great deal, in my opinion. Where all of this is going, I mean, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, um, I, I'm old enough that I've heard people prognosticate in the early days of... Uh, of phototype, you know, I, I remember very vividly a talk by someone who said, you know, when we abandon metal, it will no longer be necessary to set type in straight horizontal lines. It's no longer little rectangular section pieces of metal. Type will all be wavy and go round in circles and so on. And for about a month it did, you know, but then, <laughs> then it dawned on people that Type didn't go in straight horizontal lines because it was little bits of rectangular section metal. Type was made as little bits of rectangular section metal because type went in straight horizontal lines. <laughs> so, so these prognostications usually are calamitous, you know. So I've tried to discipline myself not to make them because I've lived through too many that failed. Um, so I really don't know. I mean, it's a very good question. And... and Someone like me should have a response and answer to it, but I don't. I don't really have it. Uh, partly because things are moving rather fast at the moment after this long sort of stagnant period from the mid nineties, where web fonts concerned. Whereas I say, always been cursing me. Um, things are now sort of floodgates open, and there's all kinds of different models for doing this. Um, where it will all end up, your guess. Is good I'd like to thank you very much indeed and give you a poster for your talk, which is adorned with your own typefaces. <laughs> and where this is all going next is precisely over the library, room 112 where we will have a reception in Matthew Carter's honor. Please join us there.